0: We know that everything changes when the first shot is fired. You have a plan, you go execute the plan right at the start. The Mm -hmm. first shot is fired, the plan changes. But the planning process that went through to develop the plan is gonna highlight so many considerations that must be dealt with. And so you build contingencies around those considerations. And so, yeah, the plan itself is nothing because we know it's gonna change. But the steps we go through to prepare to execute a plan that we know will change, the steps Mm -hmm. we go through are really what we take away. That's what is most important about that.
1: So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our leadership, develop our teams and scale our business in a way that allows us to get our products and services out to the world, yet still remain profitable. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner, and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Hey, before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Welcome to another episode of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. My name is Bradley Hamner, your host. On today's episode, we have Colonel Vossler, and Colonel McCausland, I think that all of you would agree with me that there's little doubt our nation is in crisis. You know, given the ongoing pandemic, political, social divisions, and just enormous economic challenges, I know you'll agree with two concerns. One, that emphasis on leading during a crisis is definitely needed. And two, we need great leaders now more than ever. I think you'll love this episode with Tom and with Jeff as we discuss their book and their leadership principles that they use in Diamond Sixer Leadership. But their book, Battle Tested, it uses leadership lessons that are enduring and are as appropriate today as they were in the 19th century. We discuss their book and telling the story of the Union and Confederate soldiers, generals and politicians during the iconic struggle of Gettysburg and how we can utilize those leadership lessons for today's leaders. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Tom Vossler and Dr. Jeff McCausland. Wouldn't it be a great start to 2021 by having more leads in your book of business? Well, that's where our partners at DirectClicks Inc. come in. Their team's dialed-in approach to running Google Ads and online SEO campaigns maximize the quality and the volume of your leads, whether that's for inbound phone calls or even exclusive leads through your website. DirectClicks, Inc. works only with PNC insurance agency owners, so they have thousands of hours creating A-B split testing and improving online campaigns specifically for insurance. They also understand why each and every marketing dollar matters in providing true results, low paper clicks, transparency, and attention to detail, all of which is discussed in depth during your monthly review calls. Reach out to the Direct Clicks team at directclicksinc.com. That's directclicksinc.com and find out how they can make a difference in your approach to generating new business. Ambition is the first step towards success. Sign up at coachpeakconsulting.com and get your first full month for free when you mention the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Tom and Jeff, welcome to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast.
2: It's great to be with you, Bradley, and a real opportunity to talk to you all about the leadership and the timeless principles of leadership that Tom and I, I think, would totally agree continue for organizations today. And of course, in our book, we try to draw from that, looking at the Battle of Gaysburg for those enduring principles and concepts of leadership.
1: Well, we always start with background and origin story, and I think that your backgrounds and your origin story and how both of you got to where you are today will be great for our listening audience. And so I'll just work to try to call on each one of you. So, Tom, why don't you kind of start and share a little bit about kind of your background, your origin story, how you got to where you are today?
0: Okay, Bradley, I'm an Army veteran, my years of service, 1968. Through 1998, so 30 years as a combat arms leader, and commander, trainer, training infantry squads and tank crews, and started in Vietnam as an infantry platoon leader in combat, and I survived that along with my boys, and then came back and continued on. And I say infantry platoon, we're talking about 42 guys in terms of size. So 20 years later, I commanded a task force in Germany, infantry and tanks of 1,200 soldiers, U.S. and German, and then finished off primarily in staff positions and finished off my my time. Last assignment, not by coincidence, was director of the Army's Military History Institute. So things military history, the Civil War, the book battle tested, all that relates back to my superintending the management of the archives, the unofficial archives for the Army. Institute was located at Carlisle Barracks, co-located with the Army War College, And that's where Jeff and I first met, was at the Army War College. And I'll transfer over to Jeff.
1: First of all, thank you. Thank you both. Let me say this. Thank you both for your service to our country.
2: Appreciate that, Bradley. Yeah, as Tom said, my background is somewhat not terribly dissimilar. Uh, A little younger, graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1972. So this spring I will celebrate my 50th anniversary of the graduation from West Point. I was commissioned in field artillery and had similar assignments training soldiers and doing operations, primarily the focus on the Cold War and spent a lot of time in Europe. The war in Vietnam had come to a close as I was finishing up parachute school and ranger school. So I was off to Europe and spent a good portion of my career there. I commanded a field artillery battalion in Europe and deployed them for Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm in combat. And we were part of the lead attack force for the 7th U.S. Corps, the big left hook, if you recall that, into Kuwait with about 800 soldiers under my command. I always say, through the grace of God, the great leadership on the part of some fantastic young soldiers, lieutenants, and captains, we got through that with only getting a couple guys wounded and didn't lose anybody. Subsequently, I have spent my time between time in the artillery and time doing political military affairs stuff, focused, again, primarily on Europe. So I taught at the Military Academy at West Point for a few years before Battalion Command, and then subsequently was on the faculty of the War College, uh, where Tom and I met, and then I also became the Dean of Academics at the War College. Got pulled out of there for about a year to work on the National Security Council staff in the White House during the Kosovo crisis because of background I'd gotten in work at the Pentagon on arms control issues. So spent time working in the White House during a crisis, which was a fascinating experience to say the least. And then having retired from that, have been involved in leadership development at the collegiate level and working with corporations, uh, teaching leadership at Penn State University, Dickinson College, where I am today as well as the United States Naval Academy, where I was a chair of leadership education at the Naval Academy. And for the last about 15 years, uh, have been running Diamond Six, where we do executive leadership workshops for corporations. One of our, certainly, if not our flagship, one of our flagship uh, workshops is using the Battle of Gettysburg as a case study. And Tom and I worked on that, him providing the historical analysis and me using those historical vignettes to talk about leadership concepts and principles. And having done that for the better part of town 10 years, Tom, and I decided that we would take that analysis and put it into a book. And that's how Battle Tested was born.
1: But we could turn this into like just a history lesson of just war and leadership and so many things that you guys have learned. And so I'll try to pull out the best of the best from both of you. What is it about, you believe, specifically Gettysburg? That makes it to be such an amazing story metaphor for us to be able to use today. What is it specifically about that one that you felt like that, hey, let's write this book, Battle Tested, which is a fantastic book. What was it about that one that you began to kind of really see the connections between 19th century and 21st century?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, Tom and I were at the War College. Uh, He at the Military History Institute, I on the faculty and subsequently the dean. And the park actually began in part at the end of the 19th century as a place for military officers to conduct staff rides. And there actually was a lot of training done prior to World War One and afterwards on the use of the first kind of armored vehicles at a place called Camp Colt, which was located at Gaysburg. And if you go down there, you can see old photographs, certainly of the battle, but even after the battle of officers doing that, They're using it as a case study to study strategy, tactics, and leadership to a degree. So Tom and I had taken groups of war college students down there every year to use the field as a big classroom. And having done that many, many times, we finally said, you know, this is a story about two organizations in conflict, two organizations in crisis. And during a crisis, good and bad leadership stick out in bold relief, whether that organization's a military formation, a corporation, a non-for-profit or whatever. During a crisis, that's where we see good and bad leadership stick out and those principles become very clear. So Gettysburg became a useful device to do that. And then secondarily, from a historical standpoint, I always like to say there were a lot of battles the United States had been involved with since its conception back during the Revolutionary War. There are two battles in which the entire fate of the nation hangs in the balance on a particular afternoon. And the first of those, of course, is the Battle of Yorktown, which was a lot more close run affair, I think, than many Americans believe. And I actually do a leadership workshop using Yorktown as a case study. But in any event, obviously, if you don't win at Yorktown, we might still be part of the British Empire and might be using pounds and pence here instead of dollar bills. So that was a singular event. And then the second is Gettysburg. And on the afternoon of the 3rd of July, 1863, of course, the so-called Pickett's Charge, which is the culmination in many ways of the fighting of the battle. If, in fact, that attack had succeeded, if the Confederates, either prior to that or because of that attack, had won the Battle of Gettysburg, well, then you can spin your history out from there. Whatever direction you might want to take it. Abraham Lincoln, perhaps, very likely, does not get reelected in 1864. And Bradley, we might have to come down and visit you in Alabama by getting a visa to cross a national border between two separate countries. So, that iconic nature of Gettysburg and Yorktown being those two singular events where the entire fate of the nation hangs in the balance. And then, last but not least, of course, Ted Turner down there in Georgia helps out by actually doing a very good movie about Gettysburg which offers you a platform to kind of quickly examine it for people who are going to participate in our workshops.
1: Tom, he mentioned we were talking before we press record. I think we're all at this point at the time we're recording this. It's mid-January or so, and we're all getting a little bit of tired of talking about COVID. I mean, we're going on almost two years. But the reality is he's mentioned crisis, Jeff missing crisis. I mean, it feels like it's been in crisis mode for a couple of years now, right? What is like one of the principles from the Battle of Gettysburg in a crisis situation that you think is applicable to leaders today as we're facing certainly a different type of crisis, right? People have referred to the great resignation that's been happening, et cetera. So can you just speak to that and just give us one example of one of those principles?
0: Sure, I can do that, Bradley. I go back to perhaps your last interview with Troy. In which he said we have to adapt or die given our circumstances and that reminded me of the concept of learning organizations Mm. so how does that affect our discussion this afternoon back at the time of the civil war at the time of gettysburg uh, think of gettysburg as the first series of plays after the first half is over after halftime because the first half of the game confederacy in the east has been victorious in battle after battle over the federal army, over the Union army. And so what happens, Gettysburg represents the transition of the federal army, the Union army, as a learning organization. They finally have learned how to win. Mm. And so that's what sets Gettysburg apart, I think, from the other battles. And it is what we would call the beginning of the turning of the tide in the outcome of the war. And that's mm. why I think it is indeed so important So for these organizations, these regiments, you know, you get a regiment of an average strength of 300 and some men out there, they have to adapt, they have to learn from each other, adapt to their experience. One of the phrases that Jeff and I use when we do our seminars is the successful organization, the people who run them, the leaders of those organizations must adapt, innovate and overcome. And so you got to think out of the box. You've got to adapt, particularly in the 21st century, 20th and 21st century, technology drives so much, drives change much quicker. I think of our time in the army, how things have changed, a change in weapons systems drives tactics and so on as a continuing evolution. I would think in the business world, it's the same kind of proposition, particularly the ability to communicate and deal with information and reach out to potential customers at the same time with your mission statement is to help the small businesses which turn to you for advice, for assistance. And so it's that kind of operation being there for them to turn to is important.
1: Jeff, when he mentions adapt, innovate, and overcome, certainly the speed in which change happens today, specifically around technology change, is certainly faster than it was At Gettysburg, I mean, that's obvious, but faster than less 10 years ago, let alone 200 years ago. What are the things that we can do? So it's really two things as both leaders, but then also to help teach our teams to be adaptable, to overcome, to be resilient. Earlier, you were referring to the Georgia quarterback and his resilience in the national championship game as just a kind of a recent example for sports, but. What is the way that we do that both as leaders for ourselves, but then how do we actually teach that to our teams?
2: Well, it's a great question. I think back to this whole idea of leading a crisis, one has to, first of all, understand that you have to sustain effort for a longer period of time. The American Civil War lasted four years. Mm-hmm. At the onset of the conflict, I think it was a Georgia or South Carolina congressman would say, all the blood that will be spilled in this war will be able to be wiped up by one lady's handkerchief. And the expectation at the start of the war was it would last a couple of months. Hmm. And then it's still going on four years later. In a similar vein right now, you might say the pandemic, we thought would be over in a couple of months. And you have to understand as a leader, this is the marathon. This is not the 50-yard dash. And I have to think about that in my mindset to take care of myself, to sustain myself and to sustain my team. And, you know, change is exactly the problem. And the change also occurs in terms of technology being one thing you have to stay abreast of. And also think through how do I integrate that technology quickly? Because what we want is teams that are innovative. Peter Drucker, who's a very famous organizational theorist, one time said innovation is change that brings on a new level of performance. So, an invention is one thing, but until you integrate that into your structure, it's just a toy. It's just something you're playing around with until you enhance to a new level of performance. And we're seeing this right now as we try to adapt very quickly to hybrid modes of leading organization using advanced technology like we're doing right now in preparing this podcast using Zoom. But we got to think through, how do we integrate that very well? And at the same time, make sure we're building a solid organization. And so I think that's a trick that all leaders are working their way through right now as part of this whole idea of working in a new environment. The transition back, for example, to whatever comes after COVID, and there will be a day after COVID, One thing they should know for sure is it's not going to be December the 1st, 2019. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to integrate that technology effectively, not only in terms of my organization's performance, but back to the big resignation. I think the technology now is key in how I think one of the biggest problems leaders have, and that is how do we maintain the best and the brightest people in our organization Mm -hmm. and keep them as being part of the team? And as you talk about technology change, I think the other thing leaders have to think about is We're changing, but so is our competition. You know, in the military, we like to say the enemy gets a vote on your plan. You can come up with the greatest plan going, but you're dealing in a dynamic environment. You do X, the enemy gets to do Y. Well, the same is true in business. And you know that, I'm sure, Bradley, from your experience. I got to think about what my competition is doing as I am changing my plans. I got to be aware of how they're reacting. In a way, you could say our current enemy is the pandemic. And around Thanksgiving or Halloween, we were all feeling pretty good about ourselves, thinking that this thing seemed to be lessening, of course, in terms of its impact. Not long comes Omicron and a whole new variant, and we're kind of back where we were. So we have to deal with that kind of change. And the final point I would say is a leader has got to build trust in the team. This is the one thing that gets people through difficult times, certainly through periods of combat. Tom and I can attest to that from our personal experience. And we'll get a team now through this difficult time called COVID. How does the team maintain trust in the leadership? One thing the leader has got to do, and it certainly is true in combat as well in a moment of crisis, is he or she has to be optimistic that we're going to get through this. That doesn't mean you're crazy optimistic that it's going to go away tomorrow. But you have to be what I would call realistically optimistic. Your team may get to your level of optimism. They will rarely, if ever, exceed your level of optimism. So if you're not demonstrating a certain level of optimism, don't expect them to. And I always like to say attitude for the organization as a whole begins at the top. And attitude is a choice. Yeah. We make a choice about our attitude. Now again, I want to stress I want to be optimistic with my team, but at the same time, I've got to balance that with honesty about how difficult our circumstances are at a particular moment, whether that's in a battle. We're in a pandemic.
1: All right. So I got to pull out a couple of things. I'm going to kind of go back to the very first thing you mentioned. When you said sustained effort, one of the things that was making me think of is having realistic expectations. If we went into COVID in March, April or so of 2020 and said, oh, we'll be out of this in two months. And clearly now here it is two years later and we're not versus having the expectation of, you know what? We don't really know how long this was going to be and it may get harder before it's going to get easier then it allows us almost like whenever I I don't love to fly, it doesn't really scare me, but it's not like my most fun thing. I don't really love when the pilot says, hey guys, we're going to have some bumpy weather, but I'd rather him tell me that on the front side so I can expect it as opposed to we're going to have a smooth flight. And then all of a sudden we hit turbulence and I'm like, wait, what's going on? Right. So at least I understood and I expected it. The second thing I heard you mention is I love that. I never heard, you know, the enemy gets a vote in your plan. (laughs) And I'll say this, and then I'll let Tom chime in here. When I interviewed General McChrystal on the podcast, I asked him about whenever he went into Iraq and Afghanistan, he put a plan together. Clearly, he had a plan that he presented to the White House of what they were going to do. And obviously, by his own admission, they get in there. And clearly, the Taliban had a vote in his plan of like, yeah, well, we're not going to do that. So he had to adapt and overcome, et cetera. And so then I asked him, well, why would we even do the plan? Why don't you just get over there and wait and then figure it out once you get there? And so I would love to hear both of your thoughts on that. And then the last thing is, I totally agree around building trust in the team and the team having trust in the leader, both being optimistic and having honesty about the real situation that you may find your business in. I like to say we call it MIT, the most important thing. So what's the most important thing you can do for yourself is to protect your confidence, because if you can protect your confidence as the leader, then that can manifest itself in optimism that you portray to the team. And so, Tom, I just want to ping it over to you and get your opinion on some of the things I just shared there.
0: Well, you spoke of McChrystal and the plan that, you know, General Eisenhower, let's go back to another general. General Eisenhower said the plan is nothing. But planning is everything. In other words, we know that everything changes when the first shot is fired. You have a plan. You go execute the plan right at the start. The -hmm. first shot is fired. The plan changes. But the planning process that went through to develop the plan is going to highlight so many considerations that must be dealt with. And so you build contingencies around those considerations and it widens your view. It gives you a wider view of the situation that you're in, a wider view of the means by which you can achieve, accomplish the objective. And so, yeah, the plan itself is nothing because we know it's going to change, but the steps we go through to prepare, to execute a plan that we know will change, the steps Hmm. we go through are really what we take away. That's what is most important about that.
1: Do people recognize your agency brand? More importantly, do people care about your brand? At Relevant Marketing Solutions, we partner with you to clarify your message and deliver it through multiple marketing channels, creating a brand that inspires. With over 10 years of experience working with insurance agencies, our team can help your agency not only get noticed, but start cultivating brand champions. From creating a logo to putting it on a coffee mug, we are your one-stop shop for all things marketing. We can even produce a video of you drinking out of your cool new mug. Visit us at relevantadvantage.com to learn more. And if you're a state farm agent, you can also find us at sfagentpromos.com and be sure to enter club capital at checkout for a special discount. That's club capital, lowercase and no spaces at checkout for a special discount. Relevant marketing solutions, helping you cultivate brand champions. Clearly, when you're in battle, the goal is to win. That's clear. So like if we apply that to business, Jeff, like we can have our goals and our outcomes and our targets that we want to achieve in 2022 for the business. But I think oftentimes we don't necessarily like we articulate eyes very clearly, this is what we want to accomplish. This is what life is going to be like when we hit this goal. But sometimes we don't actually go through and building the actual specific plan to then set achieve that goal in this, as Tom was saying, build in some of those contingencies. Jeff, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that.
2: Yeah, two things. One is, I think one of the biggest weaknesses, frankly, Bradley, I encounter is business people and it's really hard to spend most of their time in tactics and no time in strategy. Tom and I are old soldiers. We used to take soldiers out on rifle range. And a rifle range, you'll have pop-up targets and they'll pop up 50 meters, 100, 150, 200, 250. You have to engage the target as it pops up. And I often say like too many business people spend all their time shooting 50 meter targets. They're trying to get through today, tomorrow, maybe this week. But that's about as long as their planning horizon is. Hmm. So the trick is, I know I've got certain things, and you just said before, what's the critical thing? I am jostling, I am juggling X number of glass balls every single day if I'm running any kind of organization. But what I've got to do is figure out a couple of things. One, how do I carve out time in my day to think long? Where's my organization going to be a year, two years, five years from now? I got to figure out how I carve out time to do that. The only way I think you can do that, or one of the ways you have to do that, is look at those glass balls and determine which of these glass balls is existential. In other words, if that glass ball hits the ground, my organization ceases to exist, okay? So I'm going to keep an eye on that. The rest of them, yeah, if that one hits the ground, it'll be inconvenient, but we'll actually make our way through that. So that then drives me to saying, well, what I need to do then is empower my team. And more and more, because of the pace of change, i got to empower my team to take care of a lot of those glass balls and realizing that their solution may not be exactly the same as mine, but the pressure of change, I got to do that. So mm-hmm. I've got to create an environment that encourages initiative. Mm-hmm. Initiative is the one thing, you know, Tom and I were giving a talk a couple months ago, and we were at a big ball row and laughing. I got all these corporate guys there, and we said to them, how many people in this room are totally opposed to initiative in your organization? Let me see a show of hands. Everybody who's totally opposed to initiative, raise your hand. Okay. Everybody looked at us like we had three heads, right? And then we said to them, okay, what are you doing to encourage initiative, to create an environment of initiative in your organization? If in fact, somebody does something, takes initiative and it doesn't go well, and you publicly humiliate them or you fire them, okay? Well, guess what? (laughs) You're sending a message to the whole organization that my boss is basically a micromanager Initiative is not welcome here. So I'll fold my hands, I'll do exactly what I'm told. I'll do that well, and then I'll look back at my boss and wait for him or her to tell me the next thing to do. Well, Mm. that's a method, but in the current environment we're in right now, I think that's a method that leads to failure because it doesn't create an environment of initiative, and it means that you as the leader then are involved in everything that happens every single day, depriving you of any opportunity to think long for the organization.
1: So Tom, what is an example then off of that? Because I'm actually really curious about this. Let's say that you're doing it right. You're spending your time on the business, not in the business. You've empowered your team. So really, your team is closer to the battle, the daily battle that's happening, right, of serving clients, winning sales, et cetera. They may have and probably would have more of an understanding of what's going on and what changed. So what is a specific thing that we as leaders could do to make sure that we foster that environment so that the team does feel that they could have initiative to come up with different things in the organization?
0: Let me give you, Bradley, some similarities between a military organization and the small businesses that you work with, and that what we pride ourselves in in terms of the Army was the fact that what we tried to do every day was to prepare for our wartime mission, whatever it may be. At the same time, we have to develop the leadership for the organization because the organization is everything. Organization is everything to the point that what we seek to build and maintain are high-performing organizations, which are survivable and sustainable over time. So how do you do that? You do that through training the leadership of the organization by training your subordinates. In other words, you are creating your own replacement that should you follow by the wayside, the organization will still survive because we have someone just like you who shares your vision, who is as educated and experienced, maybe not quite as what you are, but certainly exposed to conditions under which the organization can survive Mm. and what must be done in order to maintain that certain level, not give up ownership of your share of the dollar. And so you do that through training the subordinates. Everything goes into the training in terms of schooling, in terms of equipping them with the tools of technology, that they need to be competitive within the environment in which you operate. And so empowerment of the people Jeff mentioned, empowerment, people leading the boss, what we call leading up, leading the boss to make the right decision, being willing to hear their suggestions, to be able to, willing to hear their information. At the same time, not be subjected to what we call slow rolling the boss. That's the adverse of that. Where subordinates don't agree with the decision made by the senior leadership and will slow roll the boss on execution. And so you develop people through trust and confidence mm-hmm. in you as the leader, the leader, the owner, however you want to, the person at the top has to extend that downward through the chain of command, if you're using an army term, or through the different levels of the organization.
1: I just finished listening to a book that I had been on my. Audible wish list for some time. It's written by Ben Horowitz. It's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And he really details kind of his story. I didn't actually know much about his story. And one of the things he mentions about halfway through the book that I wrote down, he said, There's only two ways to increase performance, and that is through motivation and training. Motivation and training. And I thought, man, that's really good. Because then he goes on to basically say, "Like, hey, motivation is kind of short term, but training is the long term to be able to increase performance. Jeff, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and I hope that I'm able to articulate this question in a way that makes sense, is you all have worked with hundreds, if not thousands of leaders and organizations, both big and small executives of really big companies down to small businesses. And I think that a lot of times people are really leaders are trying to do the right things. They are trying to lead in a certain way. But oftentimes, whenever you see and have worked with a business that is in conflict, maybe they're in crisis, maybe it's not COVID, maybe it's just simply like, they're losing market share, revenues being cut, et cetera, And they're trying to get it back, right? So you're seeing a leader that's struggling. What is a story and something that you see and can relate back to at Gettysburg that when you are working with someone, you see, you know, they're trying to do the right things, but what they're doing is actually wrong. And here's a story to relate to a typical thing that you see back at Gettysburg to share with that business owner, that leader, to kind of get them on the right path. Does that make sense?
2: Makes sense. Absolutely. And I would go back to this theme of initiative. Do I create an initiative in an organization that allows it to be successful and take advantage of opportunity as it presents itself? Because opportunity may be fleeting. OK. Mm-hmm. And I always say that the whole story of Gaysburg can be, if you will, <laughs> boiled down to two officers, two hills, in <laughs> the question of initiative. OK. On the first day of the Battle of Gaysburg, the Confederates actually are successful on day one. And towards the end of the day, Richard Ewell, who has recently taken over command of a corps, arrives on the field. His guys were successful. Late in the day, he gets a message from his boss, Robert E. Lee. And that the message that says, take that hill to your front, which was Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge, if you deem it practical to do so. Ewell mm-hmm. have been raised, if you will, in a school of leadership development and training by a guy named Stonewall Jackson, who had the record for the most officers he court-martialed in the entire Confederate army for making mistakes. It wasn't exactly a climate of initiative. So here's old poor old Richard Ewell, first time he's in command as a corps commander, first time in a major battle, and my boss is asking me my opinion. Nobody would ever asked me before, and I think most people agree, and Tom can chime in, but I know what he's going to say at the end. If Ewell had proceeded to do that, he probably would have been successful. It would have been a one-day battle, a Confederate victory, and history would be very different. But he decides, nope, I'm not taking the initiative. I'm not, not me. I'm waiting for very strict guidance. He demores. On the afternoon, of the second day of the Battle of Gaysburg, a Union officer, brigade commander by the name of Strong Vincent, an attorney from Erie, Pennsylvania, is told to take his brigade into the wheat field to reinforce what was rather a disastrous choice by another Union Corps commander. We'll go into that detail if you want to. On his way to that location, he receives a message from a messenger saying, you know, the head army engineer, a staff officer who has no command authority, says we really need to put troops up on Little Round Top. So this guy is conflicted. My orders are to go in this one place, the Wheatfield. That's what I have been told to do. I've got that in writing to do that. And this guy, who has no authority over me at all, says for the good of the entire organization, well, we need to put some guys on Little Round Top. So what does he do? He violates his orders. He could have been court-martialed, moves his brigade up on Little Round Top, and securing Little Round Top and the famous defense by the 20th Maine, it's featured in the movie Gettysburg, is all the difference. And if the Confederates had been successful there, if he hadn't done that, Confederates take Little Round Top, again, very likely a two-day battle, still a Confederate victory, and you can spin history any way you want to. He felt empowered to take the initiative. He did that because it was the best for the organization. Maybe not have been best for him. He could have been court-martialed. It's a moot point, by the way. He gets killed making that decision. He is actually killed in the fighting that afternoon. But that whole question of instilling an air of initiative in people to make choice, they feel they can empower to do so, which is best for the organization. And then, of course, the leadership in doing so has got to be able to accept a certain amount of risk. You've got to be willing to take risk this may not work and if it doesn't work when I've empowered someone and they make choice how do I react do I take the heat and say my team I encourage them to take initiative they did so it was a reasonable idea it just didn't work but I accept the responsibility or do I do what too many corporate leaders do and that is let me find the first guy I can grab a hold of and start tossing him under the bus to take the responsibility for what went wrong so at the end of the day, to use it, I say to leaders oftentimes, are you trying to develop Richard Yules in your organizations, or are you trying to develop strong Vincent? Tell me what you're trying, the kind of person you're trying to develop, and it'll lead you then and how you ought to create the climate that's going to be most effective for your organization.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking intentionality is the word that was in my mind of what you were saying is like, what are you intentionally developing in your organization? And so sometimes maybe the decisions we're making are micro decisions that are not so big, like the one you gave, their micro decisions. I can think back on times where I've asked for feedback from my team on something and it could be, how are we going to create a scoreboard to measure X, Y, Z initiative that we're doing for the next 12 weeks? I mean, it could be something as small as that. And they come back with an idea and I'm thinking to myself, that's crazy, I'm that's stupid, why are we doing that? Well, early on, I would have squashed that and said, okay, thanks for the input, we're gonna do it my way anyway versus now, you know what? This actually came up. This is a real example. This came up within the last few months is I thought to myself, you know what? I don't like that, but you know what? In my mind, we're going to do it anyway, because that's what they do. It's their idea. I need to accept their idea and do it. And honestly, it was the best thing. I didn't like the way it was designed. I didn't like the way it looked. It's not how I would have done it. Mine would have been cleaner. It would have been on an Excel spreadsheet. It would have been a certain way. That in the end, that one was more effective because they had buy-in and it was their initiative. And so it teaches you a lesson, even though you may say, well, that's not exactly how I would do it. But I think that's such a great thing. Tom, I want to ask you before we got started, I mentioned, I just think it's pretty fascinating, the timeliness of principles that stand from the 19th century to the 21st century. And so I think that there are my goodness, you know, Jeff, you mentioned tactics earlier. I mean, there's so many different ways to advertise now on social media, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, TikTok now, et cetera. I mean, there's so many of those kind of things that are just changing so quickly, but yet there are some timeless principles that exist 200 years and they'll probably exist 200 years from now. What is another one of those principles coming from Gettysburg, et cetera, that still applies today?
2: Well,
0: what we teach here in terms of principles, what we try to impart to our clients are principles that are universal, just like you said, really universal over time, over occupation, and even over nationality. And so a lot of those we've really kind of mentioned already in terms of leading the boss, leading up, being able to do that, being empowered to do that, maintaining the initiative, adapt, innovate, and overcome. But for the leader, I would say two things are very important in terms of principles, is that the leader must always prepare the organization for change. The leader must have a vision for the future, be able to look out so far that they're into the strategic ballgame as opposed to the tactical inning-by-inning play. And they are going to prepare the organization for the sense of change, usually through technology. And they must also, as I say, play at that level, not get so deeply involved in the tactical operation there are others in the organization. That's their job. Don't do the sergeants we always preach. Don't do the NCO's job for them. But yeah. then they're the backbone of the organization. Let them do their job. We've got other things that we must be concerned about. And so I would think that translates from the military organization from 19th century to uh, small business organization, of the 21st
1: century. Jeff, have you have anything you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I want to come back for a second, though. I really liked your story about allowing your team to do something at first blush that you didn't like. And I think it gets to one of those leadership principles, and that is, I think, really good leaders are really good listeners and their ability to listen. And you know, too often times, we think about effective communications. You think about me talking and waiting patiently for my next opportunity to talk, mm-hmm. when in reality, listening is a critical part of leadership. And going back to Gettysburg for a second, think about this in terms of communications. Abraham Lincoln had two great quotes that I always like when thinking about communications. One is, Lincoln once said, you know, it's better to be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all possible doubt. And then he also went on to say, there's a reason why God gave you two ears and one mouth. He was trying to tell you something. So we say we want feedback from our team, but really, do we really want to listen to them? And you listen to them because when you listen to the team, don't forget, you Create expectations, so they come up with this idea. And if you said that to yourself, that's a terrible idea. I'm going to ignore it. Well, guess what? They're not going to probably provide you much more feedback because it's a pointless exercise. Mm-hmm. You created expectations, and then you allow those expectations to grow. Good news is the plan work, Number one, and better news is I now have improved the environment where my team is going to be encouraged to do that. But a couple other things that you might also think about. Tom touched on leading the boss. That's critical. Trust in the organization. Trust is what Blues, the leader to his or her organization. If they don't trust you, you may force them to do certain things. But when things get very difficult, that's when you're going to start seeing the organization come apart at the seams, whether it's a sports team, military formation, or again, or a corporation. And then the final thing I talk about is the leader has responsibility to control the culture, to manage the culture, destroy the culture if that necessary. And every once in a while, I say leaders have to step back and say, what's our brand, which is really essential part of our culture. When people say, the Capital Podcast, what comes to mind? What are we? Okay. and every once in a while, we got to think about that. And do I need to adjust that based on changes in the environment and changes that are ongoing? That's why I think it's so essential that leaders talk about what is the mission, vision and values of my organization? I don't care how small or how large. What's our mission, vision and values? These are the guardrails of our culture. And if you don't talk about them, I always say to leaders, then who in the hell in your organization is going to talk about them? And as people are making choice through empowerment, those things, the mission, vision, and the values of the organization should be a guiding light in the direction they go. Frankly, rather I go so far as to tell corporations, I'll give you a test that any organization can apply. And that is go to the website and count the number of clicks it takes you Define the organization's mission, vision, and values. It's there somewhere. If it takes you more than two clicks, it's irrelevant. In other words, they have a mission, vision, and values because they read a textbook that said all organizations have a mission, vision, and values. They just don't use it for anything. In reality, this is a tool to guide, develop your organization, and give them guardrails between which they can make choice that's best for the organization. Hey, yeah. Jeff, let me interpose this. Sure.
0: I'm pleased to report upon my check of the website of club capital last night <laughs> vision and values was right up front. First click. There
1: you are. You know, a couple things that you mentioned <laughs> there just really resonates with me doing this podcast. The last two years has helped so much within my organizations of me being a better listener because of doing the podcast. And listen, I have a long way to go. Obviously, we always want to continue to improve. But I do have to say, I think I can remember not long ago, Jeff, to where when I was speaking to someone on my team, it was, yeah, it asked a kind of a not a really good question. It was kind of a bland question. And it's like, okay, kind of get on with it so I can ultimately share what it is I want to share. But I do think that doing the podcast is, you know, it's not about me, it's about my guest and how to bring out the best and the guests that are on here. And I agree around values. I remember the first time that I tried to instill values in my organization, it was aspirational. I mean, it was like, that's not who we are, but this is who I want us to be. So let me make them core values. And so for those, you know, we talk about having your core four values, having four of them. That's just my personal belief around that. But you have values, you have things, even if you've not defined them. And I think that your core values can really shape your culture. If you're intentional about saying, Hey, this is truly who we are. And this is what our culture is. And being honest about that. Like if you want your organization to operate with a fast pace, or you want them to whatever, and you're not there yet, then that's not a core value. That's an aspirational thing that you're trying to improve upon. So I'd encourage people to really take the time to Think about your core values in your organization and really, who are you already, not who do you actually aspire to be? Jeff, Tom, this has been an incredible conversation. My grandfather served in World War II in the Navy. And so my entire family, my grandfather was one of 13 brothers and sisters. Several of them served our country in the Army and in the Navy. And so I've always had just an, an incredible appreciation for our military force and love reading the stories about whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, et cetera, and then how do we not just hear the history, but try to learn the lessons and the principles that we can then apply to our organizations today? And so for people that want to pick up, number one, pick up the book, Battle Tested, where would you like to point them to, Jeff? And then number two, if people want to learn more about your leadership development, leadership programs, where should they go?
2: Okay. To get the book, the easiest thing, of course, is via Amazon or Barnes & Noble is the major bookstores carrying the book. If you, in fact, do purchase a copy of the book and you send us an email to info at diamond6, you have to spell it the six, leadership.com, we will be happy to send you an autographed uh, book plate that you can put inside the book autographed by Tom and I. As far as looking at what we do with Diamond Six in terms of running executive leadership workshops, oftentimes using Gettysburg as a case study and then other seminars that are appropriate for the organization. We also do a case study. I just came back from Hawaii because we do a case study on using Pearl Harbor as a leadership case study, as well as Yorktown and and Bull Run. You can find more and more about that at uh, our website, www.diamond6, again, spell out the six, leadership.com. Again, www.diamond6leadership.com. And for me, Bradley, I got to say it's been a delight to talk to you about our book, Battle Tested. You do a great job as an interviewer. And final thing is, what you need to do is figure out a way to make your way up to the great state of Pennsylvania. And my good buddy there, Colonel Tom Vosper, and I will be happy to take you out on the field in Gettysburg.
1: Oh well, absolutely want to do that. My son is 11 now, and he's getting to the point. I would love to be able to take my entire family to come up there. So I am going to take both of you up on that. I will wait till. It gets a little warmer. I'll A little wait warmer. A little warmer yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's not it's crowded warm. right now, but warmer is better.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, there's probably a reason it's not crowded, right? <laughs> I think it's great. Uh, Tom, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. And I hope you back, have you back on in the future.
2: All right, Bradley. Thank you. Thanks, Bradley.
1: I really enjoyed that conversation with Tom and with Jeff. And if many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with the book Extreme Ownership and the stories from there. But now this book going all the way back to Gettysburg and uh, the battle at Yorktown and Pearl Harbor, et cetera. I think that's just fascinating to learn. What are the things that the way that those leaders back then were thinking and how does that apply to where things are today? You know, as always, I wanted to share just maybe one, two or three things that really stood out to me. Number one is when Jeff was sharing about the focus too much oftentimes is on tactics as opposed To strategy. And I think that that is so true. I think number two, just developing a culture of initiative and what are the things that we need to do to make sure that we actually have created the right environment so that our teams come to us with ideas and solutions and strategies that we can implement in our organization. I think it was Tom that actually mentioned and referred to it as leading up. And even just sharing that, I think that's something that I kind of circled and starred to say, you know what? am I doing things in the businesses to allow my team to kind of lead up this way, not always top down? And I didn't really realize that at the time until I started kind of going back over my notes to kind of share with you my thoughts. But one of the things that was shared really early on is learning how to win, learning how to win. And they mentioned that. And I thought to myself, you know, that's so true. I mean, if you are building a company and you're wanting to get to the point to where you're starting to win, I mean, you actually have to teach your team and yourself about like, hey, this is how to win. Because look, many of you know in the episodes I'm I'm a big Auburn fan and certainly (laughs) living in the state of Alabama, Alabama's had the upper hand in football for quite some time. But that they have a culture of winning there. And Coach Saban has been able to teach that team and all the new recruits that come in every single year, like this is how you win. Those are the things that you have to do to be able to win. And I think that there's something for us to see that also too with Gettysburg is that they began to learn how to win. And I loved, I mentioned it in the episode itself, but just the enemy or the competition gets a vote on your plan. And I think I'll remember that. If there's probably one thing that really stands out to me, I think it's going to be that one because I'd never heard it actually said that way, but that is so true. I mean, what was it? Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Or something to that effect. You know, just both Tom and Jeff, they're just fascinating people. And so if you're somebody who just loves to learn about the history and the battles and would love to kind of learn more, I definitely recommend you picking up a copy of their book, Battle Tested. They were kind enough to send me an advanced copy, and I was able to read into that. And so I think you would pick up a ton from that. And then obviously make sure that you send them an email at info at Diamond Six Leadership. Com. visit them. If you ever want to go up to Gettysburg, certainly reach out to them. I'm sure that they would love to be able to host you and maybe even your team or your family to learn and put together some of those lessons from not only Gettysburg, but uh, Yorktown, Pearl Harbor, etc. cetera. So reach out to them at diamond6leadership.com. As always, a huge thanks to our podcast partners. If it wasn't for our partners and our sponsors, we wouldn't be able to have some great guests like Jeff and Tom to come on the podcast. Hey, by the time that we're dropping this, we've been saying, let's make 2022 your best year yet. So it's roughly going to be already the third, fourth month of the year by the time this episode. Are you actually getting the leads that you need in your book of business to be able to quality leads for your team to be able to convert? If not, you know how important it is for you to have an online presence. Go to directclicksinc.com. Direct Clicks Inc.com. It's important for you to work on your business, not in your business, and to work with people and partners who are experts in areas that you're probably not. And that's exactly where DirectClicks comes in. So go to directclicksinc.com. They can help you with your SEO. They can help you with your pay-per-click. If you don't know what pay-per-click or SEO is, reach out to them and they'll be able to help you and understand why it's so important for you to have a certain presence and to be able to spend money with Google, but do it in a way that's going to help actually bring leads to your agency for you to be able to convert. In this episode, Jeff and Tom discussed the importance of training. And I think as leaders, we understand how important it is to train and develop our teams and develop ourselves too. But you got a lot of plates that you got to have, right? Spending all the time. And so the consistency of showing up and having someone who is doing the things at the highest level in an insurance agency that you can then use to help develop not only your but especially develop your team. Well, that's exactly where Coach P Consulting comes in. Go to coachpconsulting.com and every single week they're showing up to be able to show you kind of behind the scenes of the things that they're doing. What are the plays and the playbooks that they're running? How are they positioning certain different policies in their book of business? And how can that actually you to install that, not only the strategies, but also the tactics in your business to help get you whether you're wanting to get to just the next level for your business, be at the highest level in your area or in the country. Go to coachpconsulting.com and make sure you mention that you heard about them on the Club Capital Leadership Podcast for a discount off your first month. Recently, I was referring or I was sending, excuse me, a gift over to one of my referring clients who referred someone over to business growth curator and our flagship program blueprint. And I sent it to them in the mail and they got, they said, wow, this is really nice stuff. Where did you get this? And I said, well, I got it at relevant, solutions.com. And so if you want to stand out and you want to make a difference for somebody who has referred business to you, maybe it's a mortgage broker. Maybe it's a, a key person of influence in your community. And you really want to send them something that's more than a just a regular pin. You want to send up something that they're going to use on a regular basis? Maybe it's a really nice Yeti tumbler. Obviously, you can get those many different places, but you just want to do something that's unique. You want to be able to have somebody that you can speak to on the phone. They can discuss what it is you're wanting to do, work within your budget, and get you some really quality gifts. Go to relevant solutions.com and speak with one of their team members. They can Work with you no matter what your budget is to help you to really have some great promotional material to recognize your team, recognize your clients and your prospects, maybe some key persons of influence in your community who sends business to you. Go to RelevantSolutions.com. You know, of course, our partners at Club Capital, we wouldn't be able to have this episode or this podcast at all if it wasn't for the amazing team at Club Capital and all the things that they do to serve insurance agency owners. I was having a conversation just the other day with Micah and he was sharing with me about just the recent rollout of CFO services and how well that has been taken off and just how blown away one of his clients was that had been with Club Capital for quite some time and had just onboarded CFO services. He said, wow, this is going to be so impactful for insurance agency owners. I'm so grateful to be able to just have you guys that care so much about me and my business. And if you want to work with somebody who actually cares about you and customize a solution that's going to be exactly what you need so that you are setting the right targets. They understand your business better than somebody else that you're going to work for because that's all they do is work with insurance agency owners. Go to club.capital and book your no obligation demo today. Hey, every month I host a webinar to help you grow, develop, scale your business. And I'd love for you to hop on and join us so we can help you to go from being the maker in your business to being the architect in your business, to help you go from working in to working on, go to businessgrowthcurator.com forward slash webinar. And each month, usually the third Thursday of each month, I host a webinar to help you do just that. Whether that's helping you to structure and understand the reason for standard operating procedures or the four levels of delegation or the freedom workshop, If you go to businessgrowthcurator.com forward slash webinar, sign up for the upcoming webinar of your choice, and I'd love to be able to help you grow, develop, and scale. All right, everyone, until next time, lead well.